Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. Today, two stories from Lyndon Orr. First, Lola Montez and King Ludwig of Bavaria. Lola Montez being the woman who took down a kingdom. And second, the wives of General Houston. And now, Lola Montez and King Ludwig. Her name was Lola, and she was a showgirl. Such are the lyrics sung by Barry Manilow. I don't know if he knew the history of Lola Montez, but it sounded like he was working on it. Lola Montez. The name suggests dark eyes and abundant hair, lithe limbs and a sinuous body, with twining hands and great eyes that gleam with a sort of even splendor. One thinks of Spanish beauty as one hears the name, and in truth, Lola Montez justified the mental picture. She was not altogether Spanish, yet the other elements that entered into her mercurial nature heightened and vivified her Castilian traits. Her mother was a Spaniard, partly Moorish, however. Her father was an Irishman. There you have it, the dreamy romance of Spain, the exotic touch of the Orient, and the daring, unreasoning vivacity of the Celt. This woman, during the 43 years of her life, had adventures innumerable, was widely known in Europe and America, and actually lost one king his throne. Her maiden name was Marie Dolores Eliza Rosanna Gilbert, her father was a British officer, the son of an Irish knight, Sir Edward Gilbert. Her mother had been a Dan Seuss named Lola Oliver. Lola is a diminutive of Dolores, and as Lola, she became known to the world. She lived at one time or another in nearly all the countries of Europe, and likewise in India, America, and Australia. It would be impossible to set down here all the sensations that she achieved. Let us select the climax of her career and show how she overturned a kingdom, "'passing but lightly over her early and her later years. "'She was born in Limerick in 1818, "'but her father's parents cast off their son "'and his young wife, the Spanish dancer. "'They went to India, and in 1825 the father died, "'leaving his young widow without a rupee, "'but she was quickly married again, "'this time to an officer of importance. "'The former Dan Seuss became a very conventional person, "'a fit match for her highly conventional husband.' but the small daughter did not take kindly to the proprieties of life. The Hindu servants taught her more things than she should have known, and at one time her stepfather found her performing the dance to venture. It was the Moorish strain inherited from her mother. She was sent back to Europe, however, and had a sort of education in Scotland and England, and finally in Paris, where she was detected in an incipient flirtation with her music master. There were other persons hanging about her from her fifteenth year, at which time her stepfather, in India, had arranged a marriage between her and a rich but uninteresting old judge. One of her numerous admirers told her this. "'What on earth am I to do?' asked little Lola, most naively. "'Why, marry me,' said the artful adviser, who was Captain Thomas James. And so the very next day they fled to Dublin and were speedily married at Meath. Lola's husband was violently in love with her, but, unfortunately, Others were no less susceptible to her charms. She was presented at the viceregal court, and everybody there became her victim. Even the viceroy, Lord Normanby, was greatly taken with her. This nobleman's position was such that Captain James could not object to his attentions, though they made the husband angry to a degree. The viceroy would draw her into alcoves and engage her in flattering conversation, while poor James could only gnaw his nails and let green-eyed jealousy prey upon his heart. His only recourse was to take her into the country, where she speedily became bored, and boredom is the death of love. 
Later she went with Captain James to India. She endured a campaign in Afghanistan, in which she thoroughly enjoyed herself because of the attentions of the officers. On her return to London in 1842, one Captain Lennox was a fellow passenger, and their association resulted in an action for divorce, by which she was freed from her husband, and yet by a technicality was not able to marry Lennox, whose family in any case would probably have prevented the wedding. Mrs. Maine says, in writing on this point, Even Lola never quite succeeded in being allowed to commit bigamy unmolested, though in later years she did commit it and took refuge in Spain to escape punishment. The same writer has given a vivid picture of what happened soon after the divorce. Lola tried to forget her past and to create a new and brighter future. Here is the narrative. Her Majesty's Theater was crowded on the night of June 10, 1843. A new Spanish dancer was announced, Doña Lola Montez. It was her debut, and Lumley, the manager, had been puffing her beforehand, as he alone knew how. To Lord Ranelagh, the leader of the dilettante group of fashionable young men, he had whispered mysteriously, I have a surprise in store. You shall see. So Ranelagh and his party of friends filled the omnibus boxes, those tributes at the side of the stage whence success or failure was pronounced. Things had been done with Lumley's consummate art. The packed house was murmurous with excitement. She was a raving beauty, said the report. And then, those intoxicating Spanish dances. Taglioni, Cerrito, Fanny Elsler, all were to be eclipsed. Ranelagh's glasses were steadily leveled on the stage from the moment her entrance was imminent. She came on. There was a murmur of admiration, but Ranelagh made no sign. And then she began to dance. A sense of disappointment, perhaps? But she was very lovely, very graceful. Like a flower swept by the wind, she floated round the stage. Not a dancer, but by George a beauty. And still Ranelagh made no sign. Yet no. What low, sibilant sound is that? And then what confused, angry words from the tribunal. He turns to his friends, his eyes ablaze with anger, opera glass in hand. And now again the terrible, hiss, taken up by the other box, and the words repeated loudly and more angrily ever than before. The historic words which sealed Lola's doom at Her Majesty's Theater. Why, it's Betty James! She was, indeed, Betty James and London would not accept her as Lola Montez. She left England and appeared upon the continent as a beautiful virago, making a sensation, as the French would say, a success de scandale, by boxing the ears of people who offended her, and even on one occasion horsewhipping a policeman who was in attendance on the King of Prussia. In Paris she tried once more to be a dancer, but Paris wouldn't have her. She betook herself to Dresden and Warsaw, where she sought to attract attention by her eccentricities, making mouths at the spectators, flinging her garters in their faces, and one time removing her skirts and still more necessary garments, whereupon her manager broke off his engagement with her. An English writer, who had heard a great deal of her, and who saw her often about this time, writes that there was nothing wonderful about her except her beauty and her impudence. She had no talent, nor any of the graces which make women attractive, yet many men of talent raved about her. The clever young journalist, Dujarrier, who assisted Emile Girardin, was her lover in Paris. He was killed in a duel, and left Lola 20,000 francs and some securities, so that she no longer had to sing in the streets as she did in Warsaw. She now betook herself to Munich, the capital of Bavaria, 
That country was then governed by Ludwig I, a king as eccentric as Lola herself. He was a curious compound of kindliness, ideality, and peculiar ways. For instance, he would never use a carriage, even on state occasions. He prowled around the streets, knocking off the hats of those whom he chanced to meet. Like his unfortunate descendant, Ludwig II, he wrote poetry, and he had a picture gallery devoted to portraits of the beautiful women whom he had met. He dressed like an English fox hunter with a most extraordinary hat, and what was odd and peculiar in others pleased him because he was odd and peculiar himself. Therefore, when Lola made her first appearance at the court theater, he was enchanted with her. He summoned her at once to the palace, and within five days he presented her to the court, saying as he did so, "'Mine heron, I present you to my best friend.' In less than a month, this curious monarch had given Lola the title of Countess of Lansfield. A handsome house was built for her, and a pension of 20,000 florins was granted her. This was in 1847. With the people of Munich, she was unpopular. They did not mind the eccentricities of the king, since these amused them and did the country no perceptible harm. But they were enraged by this beautiful woman, who had no softness such as a woman ought to have. Her swearing her readiness to box the ears of everyone whom she disliked, the huge bulldog which accompanied her everywhere. All these things were beyond endurance. She was discourteous to the queen, besides meddling with the politics of the kingdom. Either of these things would have been sufficient to make her hated. Together they were more than the city of Munich could endure. Finally the countess tried to establish a new corps in the university. This was the last touch of all. A student who ventured to wear her colors was beaten and arrested. Lola came to his aid with all her wanted boldness, but the city was in commotion. Daggers were drawn. Lola was hustled and insulted. The foolish king rushed out to protect her, and on his arm she was led in safety to the palace. As she entered the gates, she turned and fired a pistol into the mob. No one was hurt, but a great rage took possession of the people. The king issued a decree closing the university for a year. By this time, however, Munich was in possession of a mob, and the Bavarians demanded that she should leave the country. Ludwig faced the chamber of peers, where the demand of the populace was placed before him. "'I would rather lose my crown,' he replied. The lords of Bavaria regarded him with grim silence, and in their eyes he read the determination of his people. On the following day, a royal decree revoked Lola's rights as a subject of Bavaria, and still another decree ordered her to be expelled." The mob yelled with joy and burned her house. Poor Ludwig watched the tumult by the light of the leaping flames. He was still in love with her and tried to keep her in the kingdom, but the result was that Ludwig himself was forced to abdicate. He had given his throne for the light love of this beautiful but half-crazy woman. She would have no more to do with him, and as for him, he had to give place to his son Maximilian. Ludwig had lost a kingdom merely because this strange, outrageous creature had piqued him and made him think that she was unique among women. The rest of her career was adventurous. In England she contracted a bigamous marriage with a youthful officer, and within two weeks they fled to Spain for safety from the law. Her husband was drowned, and she made still another marriage. She visited Australia, and at Melbourne she had a fight with a strapping woman who clawed her face until Lola fell fainting to the ground. It is a squalid record of horse whippings, face scratchings, in short, a rowdy life. Her end was like that of Becky Sharp. 
In America she delivered lectures which were written for her by a clergyman and which dealt with the art of beauty. She had a temporary success, but soon she became quite poor and took to piety, professing to be a sort of piteous, penitent Magdalene. In this role she made effective use of her beautiful dark hair, her pallor, and her wonderful eyes. But the violence of her disposition had wrecked her physically, and she died of paralysis in Astoria on Long Island in 1861. Upon her grave in Greenwood Cemetery, Brooklyn, there is a tablet to her memory bearing the inscription, Mrs. Eliza Gilbert, born 1818, died 1861. What can one say of a woman such as this? She had no morals, and her manners were outrageous. The love she felt was the love of a she-wolf. Fourteen biographers of her have been written, besides her own autobiography, which was called The Story of a Penitent, and which tells less about her than any of the other books. Her beauty was undeniable. Her courage was the blended courage of the Celt, the Spaniard, and the Moor. Yet all that one can say of her was said by the elder Dumas when he declared that she was born to be the evil genius of everyone who cared for her. Her greatest fame comes from the fact that in less than three years she overturned a kingdom and lost a king his throne. An interesting story was Lola Montez and King Ludwig of Bavaria. Hope you enjoyed it. This story from Famous Affinities of History, The Romance of Devotion, by Lyndon Orr. Her name was Lola, she was a showgirl, with yellow feathers in her hair, and a dress cut down her there. She would merengue, and do the cha-cha, and while she tried to be a star, Tony always tended bar across the crowded floor. They worked from eight till four, they were young and they had each other, who could We'll return with Sam Houston's Wives right after these sponsor messages. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones... Who get it done. And now, our story. Over 1001 Heroes, we recently did a story on the Alamo and the debt that Texas owes General Houston for his leadership. This story offers a great little history as well and tells us a lot more about General Houston. And now, the wives of General Houston. Sixty or seventy years ago, it was considered a great joke to chalk up on any man's house door or on his trunk at a coaching station the conspicuous letters G-T-T. The laugh went round, and everyone who saw the inscription chuckled and said, They've got it on you, old hoss. The three letters meant, Gone to Texas, and for any man to go to Texas in those days meant his moral, mental, and financial dilapidation. Either he had plunged into bankruptcy and wished to begin life over again in a new world, or the sheriff had a warrant for his arrest, and he was headed for Texas. The very task of reaching Texas was a fearful one. Rivers that overran their banks, fever-stricken lowlands where gaunt faces peered up from bouldering cabins, bottomless swamps where the mud oozed greasily and where the alligator could be seen slowly moving his repulsive form, 
"'All this stretched on for hundreds of miles "'to horrify and sicken the emigrants "'who came toiling on foot "'or struggling upon emaciated horses. "'Other daring pioneers came by boat, "'running all manner of risks upon the swollen rivers. "'Still others descended from the mountains of Tennessee "'and passed through a more open country "'and with a greater certainty of self-protection, "'because they were trained from childhood "'to wield the rifle and the long sheath-knife.' It is odd enough to read, in the chronicles of those days, that amid all this suffering and squalor there was drawn a strict line between the quality and those who had no claim to be patricians. The quality was made up of such emigrants as came from the more civilized East, or who had slaves, or who dragged with them some rickety vehicle with carriage horses, however gaunt those animals might be. All others, those who had no slaves or horses, and no traditions of the older states, were classed as poor whites, and they accepted their mediocrity without a murmur. Before he was born in Lexington, Virginia, and moved thence with his family to Tennessee, young Sam Houston, a truly eponymous American hero, was numbered with the quality when, after long wandering, he reached his boyhood home. His further claim to distinction as a boy came from the fact that he could read and write, and was even familiar with some of the classics in translation. When less than eighteen years of age, he had reached a height of more than six feet. He was skillful with the rifle, a remarkable rough-and-tumble fighter, and as quick with his long knife as any Indian. This made him a notable figure, the more so as he never abused his strength and courage. He was never known as anything but Sam. In his own sphere, he passed for a gentleman and a scholar, thanks to his Virginian birth and to the fact that he could repeat a great part of Pope's translation of the Iliad. His learning led him to teach school a few months in the year to the children of the white settlers. Indeed, Houston was so much taken with the pursuit of scholarship that he made up his mind to learn Greek and Latin. Naturally, this seemed mere foolishness to his mother, his six strapping brothers, and his three stalwart sisters, who cared little for study. So sharp was the difference between Sam and the rest of the family that he gave up his yearning after the classics and went to the other extreme by leaving home and plunging into the heart of the forest beyond sight of any white man or woman, or any thought of Hellas and ancient Rome. Here in the dimly lighted glades he was most happy. The Indians admired him for his woodcraft, and for the skill with which he chased the wild game amid the forest. From his copy of the Iliad, he would read to them the thoughts of the world's greatest poet. It is told that nearly forty years after, when Houston had long led a different life and made his home in Washington, a deputation of more than 40 untamed Indians from Texas arrived there under the charge of several army officers. They chanced to meet Sam Houston. One and all ran to him, clasped him in their brawny arms, hugged him like bears to their naked breasts, and called him father. Beneath the copper skin and thick paint the blood rushed, their faces changed, and the lips of many a warrior trembled, although the Indian may not weep. In that gigantic form of Houston, on whose ample brow the beneficent love of a father was struggling with the sternness of the patriarch and warrior, we saw civilization a-wing the savage at his feet. We needed no interpreter to tell us that this impressive supremacy was gained in the forest. His family had been at first alarmed by his stay among the Indians, but when after a time he returned for a new outfit, they saw that he was entirely safe and left him to wander among the red men. Later he came forth and resumed the pursuits of civilization. He took up his studies— he learned the rudiments of law and entered upon its active practice. When barely thirty-six, he had won every office that was open to him, ending with his election to the governorship of Tennessee in 1827. 
Then came a strange episode which changed the whole course of his life. Until then the love of women had never stirred his veins. His physical activities in the forest, his unique intimacy with Indian life, had kept him away from the social intercourse of towns and cities. In Nashville, Houston came to know for the first time the fascination of feminine society. As a lawyer, a politician, and the holder of important offices, he could not keep aloof from that gentler and more winning influence which had hitherto been unknown to him. In 1828, Governor Houston was obliged to visit different portions of the state, stopping, as was the custom, to visit at the homes of the quality, and to be introduced to wives and daughters, as well as to their sportsmen's sons. On one of his official journeys he met Miss Eliza Allen, a daughter of one of the influential families of Sumner County, on the northern border of Tennessee. He found her responsive, charming, and greatly to be admired. She was a slender type of southern beauty, well calculated to gain the affection of a lover, and especially of one whose associations had been chiefly with the women of frontier communities. To meet a girl who had refined tastes and wide reading, and who was at the same time graceful and full of humor, must have come as a pleasant experience to Houston. He and Miss Allen saw much of each other, and few of their friends were surprised when the word went forth that they were engaged to be married. The marriage occurred in January of 1829. They were surrounded with friends of all classes and ranks, for Houston was the associate of Jackson and was immensely popular in his own state. He seemed to have before him a brilliant career. He had won a lovely bride to make a home for him, so that no man seemed to have more attractive prospects. What was there which at this time interposed in some malignant way to blight his future? It was a little more than a month after his marriage when he met a friend, and taking him out into a strip of quiet woodland, said to him, I have something to tell you, but you must not ask me anything about it. My wife and I will separate before long. She will return to her father's, while I must make my way alone. Houston's friend seized him by the arm and gazed at him with horror. Governor, said he, you're not going to ruin your whole life. What reason have you for treating this young lady in such a way? What has she done that you should leave her? Or what have you done that she should leave you? Everyone will fall away from you. Houston grimly replied, I have no explanation to give you. My wife has none to give you. She will not complain of me, nor shall I complain of her. It is no one's business in the world except our own. Any interference will be impertinent, and I shall punish it with my own hand. But, said his friend, think of it. The people at large will not allow such action. They will believe that you, who have been their idol, have descended to insult a woman. Your political career is ended. It will not be safe for you to walk the streets. What difference does that make to me? said Houston, gloomily. What must be, must be. I tell you as a friend, in advance, so that you may be prepared, but the parting will take place very soon. Little was heard for another month or two, and then came the announcement that the governor's wife had left him and returned to her parents' home. The news flew like wildfire, and was the theme of every tongue. Friends of Mrs. Houston begged her to tell them the meaning of the whole affair. Adherents of Houston, on the other hand, set afloat stories of his wife's coldness and of her peevishness. The state was divided into factions, and what really concerned a very few was, as usual, made everybody's business. There were times when, if Houston had appeared near the dwelling of his former wife, he would have been lynched or riddled with bullets. Again, there were enemies and slanderers of his who, had they shown themselves in Nashville, would have been torn to pieces by men who hailed Houston as a hero and who believed that he could not possibly have done wrong. 
however his friends might rage, and however her people might wonder and seek to pry into the secret, no satisfaction was given on either side. The abandoned wife never uttered a word of explanation. Houston was equally reticent and self-controlled. In later years he sometimes drank deeply and was loose-tongued, but never, even in his cups, could he be persuaded to say a single word about his wife. The whole thing is a mystery and cannot be solved by any evidence that we have. Almost everyone who has written of it seems to have indulged in mere guesswork. One popular theory is that Miss Allen was in love with someone else, that her parents forced her into a brilliant marriage with Houston, which, however, she could not afterward endure, and that Houston, learning the facts, left her because he knew that her heart was not really his. But the evidence is all against this. Had it been so, she would surely have secured a divorce and would then have married the man whom she truly loved. As a matter of fact, although she did divorce Houston, it was only after several years, and the man whom she subsequently married was not acquainted with her at the time of the separation. Another theory suggests that Houston was harsh in his treatment of his wife and offended her by his untaught manners and extreme self-conceit. But it is not likely that she objected to his manners, since she had become familiar with them before she gave him her hand. And as to his conceit, there is no evidence that it was yet unduly developed. After his Texan campaign, he sometimes showed a rather lofty idea of his own achievements, but he does not seem to have done so in those early days. Some have ascribed the separation to his passion for drink, but here again we must discriminate. Later in life, he became very fond of spirits and drank whiskey with the Indians, but during his earlier years, he was most abstemious. It scarcely seems possible that his wife left him because he was intemperate. If one wishes to construct a reasonable hypothesis on the subject where the facts are either wanting or conflicting, it is not impossible to suggest a solution of this puzzle about Houston. Although his abandoned wife never spoke of him and shut her lips tightly when she was questioned about him, Houston, on his part, was not so taciturn. He never consciously gave any direct clue to his matrimonial mystery, but he never forgot this girl who was his bride and whom he seems always to have loved. In what he said, he never ceased to let a vein of self-reproach run through his words. I should choose this one paragraph as the most significant. It was written immediately after they had parted. He wrote, Eliza stands acquitted by me. I have received her as a virtuous, chaste wife, and as such I pray God I may ever regard her, and I trust I ever shall. She was cold to me, and I thought she did not love me. And again he said to an old and valued friend at about the same time, I can make no explanation. I exonerate the lady fully, and do not justify myself. Miss Allen seems to have been a woman of the sensitive American type who was so common in the early and middle part of the last century. Mrs. Trollope has described it for us with very light exaggeration. Dickens has drawn it with a touch of malice, and yet not without truth. Miss Martineau described it during her visit to this country, and her account quite coincides with those of her two contemporaries. Indeed, American women of that time unconsciously described themselves in a thousand different ways. They were, after all, only a less striking type of the sentimental Englishwoman who read L.E.L. and the earlier novels of Bulwer-Lytton. On both sides of the Atlantic, there was a reign of sentiment and a prevalence of what was then called delicacy. It was a die-away, unwholesome attitude toward life, and was morbid to the last degree. In circles where these ideas prevailed, to eat a hearty dinner was considered unwomanly. To talk of anything except some gilded annual or book of beauty or the gossip of the neighborhood was wholly to be condemned. 
The typical girl of such a community was thin and slender and given to a mild starvation, though she might eat quantities of jam and pickles and salatarous biscuit. She had the strangest views of life and an almost unnatural shrinking from any usual converse with men. Houston, on his side, was a thoroughly natural and healthful man, having lived an outdoor life, hunting and camping in the forest, and displaying the unaffected manner of the pioneer. Having lived the solitary life of the woods, it was a strange thing for him to meet a girl who had been bred in an entirely different way, who had learned a thousand little reservations and dainty graces, and whose very breath was coyness and reserve. Their mating was the mating of the man of the forest with the woman of the sheltered life. Houston assumed everything. His bride shrank from everything. There was a mutual shock amounting almost to repulsion. She, on her side, probably thought she had found in him only the brute which lurks in man. He, on the other, repelled and checked, at once grasped the belief that his wife cared nothing for him because she could not meet his ardors with like ardors of her own. It is the mistake that has been made by thousands of men and women at the beginning of their married lives. The mistake, on one side, of too great sensitiveness, and on the other side, of too great warmth of passion. This episode may seem trivial, and yet it is one that explains many things in human life. So far as concerns Houston, it has a direct bearing on the history of our country. A proud man, he could not endure the slights and gossip of his associates. He resigned the governorship of Tennessee and left by night, in such a way as to surround his departure with mystery. There had come over him the old longing for Indian life, and when he was next visible, he was in the land of the Cherokees, who had long before adopted him as a son. He was clad in buckskin and armed with knife and rifle, and served under the old chief, Ulateka. He was a gallant defender of the Indians. When he found how some of the Indian agents had abused his adopted brothers, he went to Washington to protest, still wearing his frontier garb. One William Stansbury, a congressman from Ohio, insulted Houston, who leaped upon him like a panther, dragged him about the Hall of Representatives, and beat him within an inch of his life. Houston was arrested, imprisoned, and fined, but his old friend, President Jackson, remitted his imprisonment and gruffly advised him not to pay the fine. Returning to his Indians, he made his way to a new field which promised much adventure. This was Texas, of whose condition in those early days something has already been said. Houston found a rough American settlement composed of scattered villages extending along the disputed frontier of Mexico. Already, in the true Anglo-Saxon spirit, the settlers had formed a rudimentary state, and as they increased and multiplied, they framed a simple code of laws. Then, quite naturally, there came a clash between them and the Mexicans. The Texans, headed by Moses Austin, had set up a republic and asked for admission to the United States. Mexico regarded them as rebels and despised them because they made no military display and had no very accurate military drill. They were dressed in buckskin and ragged clothing, but their knives were very bright and their rifles carried surely. Furthermore, they laughed at odds, and if only a dozen of them were gathered together, they would take on almost any number of Mexican regulars. In February 1836, the acute and able Mexican Santa Ana led across the Rio Grande a force of several thousand Mexicans, showily uniformed and completely armed. Everyone remembers how they fell upon the little garrison Thialamo, now within the city limits of San Antonio. But then, an isolated mission building surrounded by a thick adobe wall. The Americans numbered less than 300 men. A sharp attack was made with these overwhelming odds. The Americans drove the assailants back with their rifle fire, 
but they had nothing to oppose to the Mexican artillery. The contest continued for several days, and finally the Mexicans breached the wall and fell upon the garrison, who were now reduced by more than half. There was an hour of blood, and every one of the Alamo's defenders, including the wounded, was put to death. The only survivors of the slaughter were two Negro slaves, a woman, and a baby girl. When the news of this bloody affair reached Houston, he leaped forth to the combat like a lion. He was made commander-in-chief of the scanty Texan forces. He managed to rally about 700 men and set out against Santa Ana with little in the way of equipment and with nothing but the flame of frenzy to stimulate his followers. By march and countermarch, the hostile forces came face to face near the shore of San Jacinto Bay, not far from the present city of Houston. Slowly they moved upon each other when Houston halted, and his sharpshooters raked the Mexican battle line with terrible effect. Then Houston uttered the cry, Remember the Alamo! With deadly swiftness he led his men in a charge upon Santa Ana's lines. The Mexicans were scattered as by a mighty wind, their commander was taken prisoner, and Mexico was forced to give its recognition to Texas as a free republic, of which General Houston became the first president. This was the climax of Houston's life, but the end of it leaves us with something still to say. Long after his marriage with Miss Allen, he took an Indian girl to wife and lived with her quite happily. She was a very beautiful woman, a half-breed, with the English name of Tiania Rogers. Very little, however, is known of her life with Houston. Later still, in 1840, he married a lady from Marion, Alabama, named Margaret Moffat Lee. He was then in his 47th year, while she was only 21, but again, as with his Indian wife, he knew nothing but domestic tranquility. These later experiences go far to prove the truth of what has already been given as the probable cause of his first mysterious failure to make a woman happy. After Texas entered the Union in 1845, Houston was elected to the United States Senate, in which he served for 13 years. In 1852, 1856, and 1860, as a Southerner who opposed any movement looking toward secession, he was regarded as a possible presidential candidate, but his career was now almost over, and in 1863, while the Civil War, which he had striven to prevent, was at its height, he died. We hope you enjoyed Sam Houston's Wives at 1001 Greatest Love Story. Please tune in next Sunday night for another special presentation from 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Until then, everyone, please leave a review. We'd appreciate that very much, and stay safe. We'll be back soon.